Welcome, and thanks for joining us. My name is Sam Anwar Sesha, Director of the Museum of Colour, and your host for this series, My Words Donations. As part of the My Words exhibition at the Museum of Colour, we have invited a number of poets to donate objects to our digital collection. These are items that have a real significance to them and their creative journeys. This series is a chance to hear the stories behind those donations. And coming up, we'll be talking with Dorothea Smart. I'm Dorothea Smart. I'm a poet and I'm also a PhD student at the University of the West Indies, Cave Hill, Barbados. And I am the co-director of Inscribe which is a Black and Asian writer development programme housed by People Tree Press in Leeds. People Tree Press are the largest publisher of Caribbean authors globally. Thanks for that, Dorothea. So I want to ask you specifically about your poetry. How would you describe your work? With great difficulty. (laughs) How would I describe my work? It is political with a kind of small p. I guess I tackle issues of identity, family, genealogy, kind of gaps, absences in our history. I guess my my work tries to give a nod to our global presence. And by that, I mean that I've written poems situated in the Gambia, for example, or Egypt or New York or Vancouver, as well as London. I have been inspired by a range of poets, but also by artists, particularly black British artists like Sonia Boyce, Maud Salter, and have written works in, in Maud's case, I've written work directly responding to some of her pieces. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, thank you. When did you know yourself to be a poet? When, when did you know that that's, that's who you were? When did I know? I, I knew relatively late on. I would say I found the courage to declare myself, to name myself, to come out, so to speak, as a poet, somewhere in my early 30s. I started writing poetry probably when I was about 17 or 18. It's one of the things that I'm, in retrospect, I'm grateful to my sister for, in that I started writing when my sister left home. And I felt quite abandoned and lost and kind of lonely. It was just us two siblings. And I turned to writing. I had kept a diary from quite early on, maybe about like 12 or 13 or something like that. But it was very much about, I did this today. I did that. I watched Morecambe and Wise on telly. I saw Star Trek. It was more kind of like documenting my day, but it really made a huge qualitative shift when my sister left home and became a a place where I was kind of emoting and venting, you know. And I consciously wrote 
poems. Okay, so your poems were were capturing a particular place that you were in emotionally at a particular time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we've asked you to donate two objects to the museum and one poem. Before we talk about those objects, what is your relationship to museums and how do you feel about being in one? I love museums. I have an enormous respect for museums and the work that they do in terms of archivists and people who catalogue all the stuff, you know, and who present the sometimes countless resources that are sitting in a back room and they come up with entertaining and interesting ways of presenting information to us that kind of grabs our attention. That's the skill of the curator and the museum. And they are problematic in the sense that if you think of the big, big major museums here in London, like the British Museum, the Petrie Place in Oxford, and the Museum of Mankind, and which doesn't exist anymore. You know, they're all places where they've got all our nicked stuff in it. Um, spoils of war and spoils of conquest. And, um, you know, you go in, you'll see some beautiful kind of Benin mask or something like that. And at the bottom, it will say, property of Colonel Fidjimon, you know, returned from Africa in the 1800s sort of thing. And you think, oh, wonder how he got that then. I mean, yeah, sometimes they were gifts, but other times they were just, as they, you know, decimated the city or whatever, or the population or what have you, you know, they picked up a few interesting artifacts and then there was all that Victorian obsession with collecting and cataloguing which the Horniman Museum is a classic example Mr Horniman's collection and they collected us as well you know as in like actual physical persons or our images so I'm not unaware of the problematic around museums and archiving and in that sense. However, as somebody born and raised in London in the 1960s, if they hadn't have been in the museum in London, I wouldn't have seen them, would I? You know, if some ethnomusicologist hadn't gone into the forests of the Congo and recorded pygmy music and stuff, I'd never have been able to borrow the album out of Batsy Park Library when I was like 14 years old and hear a completely different kind of music and um the Tutankhamun exhibition which was this big huge thing you know when I was a kid when Tutankhamun came to London if it wasn't for those grave robbers and desecrators bless them you know I wouldn't have been standing there kind of awestruck at these beautiful intricate gorgeous objects that were made thousands of years ago not a few hundred, wasn't the Romans. And to know that a Roman would have been standing and looking at these same artefacts with the same sense of like, wow, these were created so long ago. It was just kind of mind-blowing, really. It shifts your perspective, doesn't it? Without that sort of time lapse, how does it feel for you to be in a museum now? Um, it feels good. 
because I had quite a key experience in my early 20s when I was working at the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre project here in London. I had the opportunity to go to New York for the first time. And my job at the centre was, what's my job title again? It was, I was like, you know, information officer. And one of my roles was putting a library together. I kind of saw that as being one of the resources that our centre would have when we finally got a building, if we ever got a building. For me, it was important for us to have a library. And when I went to New York for that very first time, I went to the lesbian herstory archives, which were in, I can't remember the woman's name, I'm I'm rubbish at names now. The lesbian herstory archive was in her apartment, which was this kind of parquet floor, Park Avenue, big apartment that she turned over to all these materials that she had. And at that time, one of the major donors to the Lesbian Herstory Archive was a black woman called Mabel Hampton. And she was the poster girl for the museum. And there was this really striking black and white photograph of this young, uh, whatever they used in those days to kind of straighten the hair down. She had like a side part in and it was slicked down and back. And she was in a in a suit with a tie, you know, and all of her letters, all of her ephemera and oral history recordings as well. And I think from then, I kind of became a fan of archives and oral history work. So yes, I want somebody 100 years from now, 300 years from now, 500 years from now, to be able to access, if we're still on the planet at this rate, but anyway, you know, to to be able to access the information and know and hear, do you know what I mean? And see, because it was amazing and really important to my sense of being, particularly as a black lesbian, but you know, as a black person, as a black woman, to just see black and white photographs of us in like Victorian garb or in flapper dresses or, you know, standing there with a hoe or something or having a picnic. And I was a very visual person. I think like from about the age of 18, probably through to about 30-ish, I collected black and white postcards of black women. You know, if I went into a shop or I went into a museum, so it could be anything from like Grace Jones through to the Clark sisters or Zora Neale Hurston, or a postcard of a young Toni Morrison, or anything, you know, Sade. And then as well, kind of reproductions of kind of old black and white pictures, or more kind of creative, kind of artistic representations of of black women, you know. Because I I guess, you know, there there was a part of me that needed to see myself in history, you know, in different ways. And yeah. Yeah, from what you're describing. So, okay, so let's talk about what you're going to put into this museum. Tell me about your first donation. What does it mean to you? And why do you want to share it? My first donation is a copper grigri. It's like a piece of jewellery that I wore consistently from the day that I got it. I probably wore it like nonstop every day for like 15 years. It was given to me in the market in Serracunda, in the Gambia, 
during one of the first times that I ever went there, which would have been 90, it would have been 92 or 93, because I had this incredible period where I ended up going to the Gambia like three times in 14 months, each time with a group of writers, and I was in the market. And going to the Gambia, I I discovered I was really good at bartering. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I got talking to, was it a guy? Yeah, I got talking to a guy in the market, and I probably bought some of his things, you know, and at the close of the transaction and the conversation that is involved in, in bartering, he gifted me that object and charged me to, to wear it for protection and good fortune. And I really loved it. And then the way that the, the it is now, I added to like brass they're not beads, really. They're kind of knots, in a way, because I used to wear wear them in my dreads. And so, I, when I was I got back and I was I was restringing it, and I thought, oh, actually, they they sit there perfectly, like they were made to just be there. So yeah, and so it speaks to the first time I ever went to Africa. It speaks to my growing understanding that not all enslaved Africans were Christians, that when we were Christianized, some of us already had another colonizing religion, which was Islam. And it started to make a lot of sense. Some of the other things that I'd experienced prior to that began to make sense through understanding that. So those visits were an important moment in your understanding of yourself your position in the world and so and and so forth and my ancestry we don't always have physical records to go by but I do believe that we have access to another kind of archive might maybe it would be like a a spiritual archive or the archive that we can access through our spirit guides and our mediums. Spiritual archive. I love this. And I, and I know from my own experience, embodied kind of experience, that some of my ancestors were Muslim. So it's definitely a part of you. Yeah. It, it doesn't sound surprising that you decided that you were going to keep that with you and on you for years that's beautiful and also people will be able to see it so they'll be able to see what you donated so can you tell us about your second object and the same thing what does it mean to you the second object was also a necklace it was made by a african-american woman called olmeca and i bought it from her i think in new york she was visiting new york because she's, or was she living in New York at that time? Because now she lives in Atlanta. And that must have been back in, like, maybe, could have been as early as 1985. I've had it for a long time. And it's a kind of small, I can, fertility doll with beautiful beads that she, she beaded, she strung the beads and arranged the beads and the brass sections. And she was an out black lesbian. I think I was an out black lesbian at that time. Kind of reminds me of the community that I discovered in my time at Hunter College, where I was doing my master's in anthropology. 
and also working at the Audre Lorde Women's Poetry Centre. And I met women who became lifelong friends. And that necklace, I'd never give it away. Okay. You know. Okay. Oh, but it's so wonderful that you've donated it so people can see it. And it sounds like such an important, again, an important moment in your life, in your journey. Yes. Um, Okay, so... Those are your physical donations. Now, your last donation is one of your poems. So tell us which poem you have chosen to donate and why. Yes, I have chosen to donate a recently republished poem that was selected for this anthology, which just came out last month. The book is A Hundred Queer Poems, an anthology edited by Mary Jean Chan and Andrew Macmillan, and it's published by Vintage Press. And it's a celebration of thrilling contemporary voices and visionary poets of the past. And it's interesting because when I was approached by the editors, one of the things that they asked is, are you going to feel okay about appearing in an anthology that's called Queer Poets, you know. I don't often define myself as queer. It is the lingua franca of the day, and I might use it as a term of sort of like convenience, shorthand, but I have issues with it, particularly issue with the way that queer politics and queer visibility seems to have eroded the visibility of black lesbians, lesbians kind of generally. And so I've found, particularly in the last couple of years, that I've kind of gone back to the terms that I chose for myself in my 20s and 30s, you know, Zami and um, kind of black lesbian, you know. But this is the terminology of the early part of the 21st century and terms change, they come and they go. And I felt it was important to be visible, you know, under this new heading, so to speak. And the poem is a poem that I wrote when um, I was commissioned along with Cy Murray, a black poet from Leeds. He and I were commissioned by African Writers Abroad, which is a pen subsidiary, and Platform London, to be kind of like poet in residence at a exhibition at the Arnold Feeney in Bristol that was called Sea Words like capital C, C for capitalism, carbon, climate. And we held workshops and wrote and participated across the week, weekend of activities that were part of the SeaWords exhibition and events around carbon, capitalism, climate change. And I went to Sai's workshop And I wrote this poem in his workshop. And I'm also particularly proud of the poem because about 10 years or so after I wrote the poem, it was taken up 
by a youth organization that's called Shake. Um, and they are young activists. Their thing is arts activism around issues of concern to them. One of those issues being climate change. When they first came together, they were introduced to this poem and they took their name from my poem. It's called Shake My Future. Shake my future. Push me past my complacency, my taken for granted, my comfort zone. Shake my future. Let me source the unimagined. Be released from the sentence of the inevitable. Take control. Empower myself. Past the dour predictions of the present and change myself. Shake my future. Challenge our first world's capitalist consumerist criminal zone of perpetual purchasing. Shake my future past the edges of the known world. Launch me out into the hinterlands of the intuited, imagined, beyond the droughts of apathy and quench my thirst for something different. Shake my future with alternative endings. Curdle the milk of human kindness beyond the patronising rattle of charity cans to preserve the poor and assuage my guilt. Shake my future with a kaleidoscope of tunes. Play some other melody and bliss me out of ignorance. Let my mind expand with a question and seeking the answers. Shake my future, shake my future, shake my future in a triangle of tangential tirades and beckon me into a sandwich of yes, we can and hope. Thank you to Dorothea Smart for being part of our exhibition and donating to the Museum of Colour. To view the donations photographed by Sharon Wallace and the portraits by Derek Akembo, head to www.museumofcolour.org.uk where you can explore the rest of the My Words exhibition and discover our growing digital collection. My Words Donations is presented by me, Samanwar Sesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms where you can also listen to our previous project, Respect Duke. The music you have heard in this series is by the fabulous Randolph Matthews. You can listen to more of his work at www.randolphmatthews.com. My Words is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Arts Council England and the Foyle Foundation. Museum of Colour is incubated at People's Palace Projects, based at Queen Mary University, London. Thank you for listening. <laughs>